Hey everybody, my name's Paige and I am the Creative Arts Manager at Grace Church Barberton. We are so glad you're listening to our Sunday service podcast. This is the live recording of our Sunday message and we hope you are so encouraged, challenged, and energized by what you hear. Let's jump into our new series, Follow Me, A Journey Through Luke. Who are you following? Right? Who are you following, right? We live in an age and a day where that question actually is extremely relevant. Not just in who are you following, maybe the car in front of you, or who are you following as you walk into workplace, or who are you following around your neighborhood, right? But who are you following is actually a very personal conversation, right? In the day of social media, all of us who have social media, we follow people and we come along in their journey, we see who they are, we see what they do, and they jump into different things from there. And when I thought of this, right, I thought of the picture. I don't know why this picture popped in my head when I I was talking about following, and I I was like, I'm going to start with the question, who are you following? And the picture that popped in my head was, do you remember the old, like, 1940s, 1950s Peter Pan movie, the Disney movie, right? And you remember when uh, Wendy's brothers, they go to Neverlands, and then they get connected to the Lost Boys? If you haven't watched it, you should watch it, right? It's a a great movie. But uh, they get into this scene where they start to uh, get in a line, and they're singing, follow. Follow the leader, the leader, the leader. Follow the leader wherever he may go, right? All of that. And that's also why I'm not singing up here, right? And that that was the image. That was the image that I got. I was like, who are you following? That's what's happening, right? It doesn't matter if you're in a school playground and you're following the leader or you're following the leader around the classroom or you're on social media, you're following a leader, right? You're following someone, and you're attesting your life to them, and you're, you're kind of pouring out, okay, I want to get connected to them, and I want to see what they're doing, and I want to know what's going on. Because here's what's interesting about following someone. Who you are following tends to be who you are becoming. Who you are following tends to be who you are becoming. And listen, where we're going to go today, we'll lean into that, but in a very unique way. Because oftentimes when we talk about following or follow me or following someone, I think we focus on what I do in that. But really, following starts with who is leading and who am I in that. It actually starts not with our activity of following, it starts with our identity in it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Today, we're going to start a new series. It's called Follow Me, right? A very simple yet poignant and very important phrase that Jesus uses throughout his time on this earth. You see that throughout his life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four writings of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. There's a lot of moments where he says, follow me, follow me, be a part of what I am doing. And that's what we're going to sink our teeth into over the course of the next eight weeks or so. Because Jesus invited us to follow him. What does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? What does that actually mean for my day-to-day, not just in a church service sitting on a Sunday morning, right? And this is the series tagline that we're just going to flesh out throughout the entire series. It's not on the screen, but you can write it down. Follow me is an identity, not just an activity. Follow me is an identity, not just an activity. 
We're going to spend eight weeks kind of fleshing that out, engaging with what in the world did Jesus mean by follow me, right? Because here, here's the reality. I dove into the passage that we're going to talk about and we're going to flesh out over today, and then we have other passages we're going to jump into. And it's all kind of centered around this conversation of following Jesus. And here's why I think it's so important, because my fear is this, okay? My fear as a pastor is that I can invite you into following Jesus purely through activity, not identity. That what often I think happens is we attribute follow me just in what I'm doing, and am I doing enough, and am I a part of enough, instead of leaning into the lens of follow me as something that Jesus, who he is, and who he says we are in light of that. That as a pastor, I fear sometimes that we can become good at calling people to follow Jesus in the activities like joining a group and serving and sharing Jesus with your coworker and doing good, which is all things that I will continually tell you to do, right? And continually invite you into and all really good things, all things that Jesus jumped into. He jumped into community. He served another. He shared who he was. He did good. But if we just start there, it becomes all about me. It becomes about me trying to, in some sort of way, attach to who Jesus is through my efforts in that. But what if following actually starts with identifying? What if following Jesus actually doesn't start with my activity of doing that, but with rather the identity of who he says I am inside of that? Because when my identity becomes a reality, then just by nature, activity happens. When my identity becomes a reality, and I'm living out of the reality of the realness of this identity Jesus gives me, then activity isn't a forced thing of, I got to follow him, or I got to do more of this, or I got to do more of that, but rather it's an overflow of who I am. And I wonder sometimes, personally, if I just get honest with you, I sit with Jesus in the mornings and then I, you know, go about my day. I'm a pastor, right? And so just by nature, like I'm supposed to follow Jesus every day by the title I bear, right? All of that stuff. And sometimes I overly think about this. I'm like, am I doing enough? Like, am I doing enough? And that question comes based out of following Jesus as an activity, not as an identity. Because if it comes based out of an identity of who he is and what he's called me to be and who he said I am, then I don't have to ask that question because we'll get to this. He is enough. And he's told me through that that I am loved and I'm cared about. And all of a sudden, when identity becomes reality, it leads me into an activity, right? Think about that song, follow the leader, the leader, the leader, follow the leader wherever he may go right? They're talking, yes, about an activity, but they're also talking about identity in that. When they say follow the leader, they know who they're following. There is someone in the front, and they know who they are in light of that. And out of that, they are going to follow the leader wherever he may go. But it starts with knowing who's leading you and what he says about you. And then out of that, you'll start to lean into him in a unique way that challenges you to follow him at lengths that maybe 
we've never followed him before? What if following Jesus starts by seeing him, by truly seeing who he is and who he's called us to be? Luke 5 is where we're going to be. And I love this passage, okay? I was studying it this week, and things popped, and I was like, ah, you know, it was just awesome. But Luke 5 sits in the middle of a context of other passages, okay? Luke 5 comes in the midst of Luke, our writer, talking about who Jesus is, what he is about, and why we should believe in him. Luke did not have any firsthand experience with Jesus. Luke has a lot of secondhand experience. He talks to the disciples, the followers of Jesus. He talks to people in the early church that were around Jesus or around others that were around Jesus. His experience is more like yours and I's right? You're seeing it through different lenses. You're capturing it, not firsthand. We spent time with the person of Jesus, but we spent time around people who were with Jesus. And today, what we're going to see is Luke, he travels us through Luke 1 through 4. He talks about Jesus' birth, talks about Mary and Joseph, talks about Jesus' early ministry, which looked very different than what you and I maybe perceive as early ministry, right? His baptism, his time in the wilderness, Then last month, we spent an entire month in Luke 4. Jesus preaches for the first time in Nazareth, right? Can you imagine just being there? We've been awestruck, we've been amazed, right? And then Luke 5 pops onto the scene. Luke 5, you can put this in your Bibles, in your notes. Just write this down. In Luke's gospel, this is kind of the turning point of Jesus' ministry where he kind of starts to become more public about it. He's going to go out in the public and he's going to preach. He's going to publicly heal. He's going to publicly call people to follow him. He's going to publicly uh, call demons out of people. Like all of that starts to turn and people start to notice him. That's a big turning point. Okay. And so Luke 5 is that introduction. And this is what we're going to see today. Following in, uh, Jesus is an invitation to see Jesus. That is what he wants us to see this morning, I believe. In the story and the moment he's going to have with Simon, who's also known as Peter. This is where he starts in Luke 5, 1 through 3. Okay? Luke 5, 1 through 3. All the passages will be on the screen. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Now, that lake is also known as the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so they interchangeably use different words for the Sea of Galilee. That's the Sea of Galilee. So he's gone from Nazareth to the Sea of Galilee. One day, all of a sudden, right, Jesus decides to kind of travel there, and he's going to speak to a crowd. Because there are people crowding around him. They're listening to the word of God. All of a sudden, this new rabbi, teacher, this new guy on the block is teaching us things that we've heard before, but in a new and fresh way. He's saying things that feels a little bit different. He's speaking from the word of God, the scriptures that they would have known and had in the Jewish culture. And all of a sudden, people start to gather Like I said, Luke 5 is a turning point. People are noticing Jesus in a unique way. Verse 2, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. It was a popular trade, especially around the Sea of Galilee, right? You have fishermen who go out on their boats. They fish. They fish with nets, not like rods and poles that we have, nets. They are cleaning their nets currently. There are two empty boats, and Jesus sees his opportunity, right? Let's go on. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, 
who also, if you read through the Gospels, is known as Peter, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Right? Let's read this in color for a moment. Let's read this in color, because this is interesting. I read it like this. Man, Jesus got in their way. Like those guys, they were just got done fishing. Those guys just got done a hard day's work, or what we'll see is actually a hard night's work. They're cleaning their nets. This guy that they probably knew and saw interacted with, at least Simon did, is coming to the beachside. All these people are following him, right? There's the new guy. There's the guy that's going to preach, right? There's the guy that did this and that. And then he gets onto their boats, and he looks at Peter, Simon, after a hard night's work and says, why don't you put out and I will teach from your boats. He got in Simon's way, which I think is interesting. Has Jesus ever gotten in your way? Listen, listen, has Jesus ever gotten in your way? Because all of a sudden, this story goes from just a moment that happened some thousands of years ago to very personal. Has he ever gotten in your way through a conversation or a circumstance, or maybe that crazy cousin that wears the Jesus t-shirts, I don't know, right? Has he ever gotten in your way? Because he did for Peter, for Simon, because this was no fluke, right? Simon was there, his boat was beached, he was done for the day, and Jesus looks at him and says, hey man, I'm going to get in your boat, I'm going to preach from out here, can you help me with that? Listen, put some flesh on it, right? Put some flesh on it. How would you have felt if I were Simon and been like, ugh, another thing? This guy want, I just want to go home and sleep. And what we'll find out is they didn't catch anything. So it's like you spent all day doing nothing. You ever had a work day like that? You get done, you go home, you're like, what, what did I do today, right? And all of a sudden, Jesus is there. What I love about this story is this. Luke doesn't tell us what he spoke about, but more leans into the interaction he had with those that were there. It's interesting that Luke wants us to get something from this interaction that Jesus had. If we continue in verse 4, we see it continues here. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, like I said, we don't know what he spoke about. It probably had some impact on Simon, clearly, the crowds. I'm not sure what passage, what phrase, but then he said, said this, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, right? There's that, right? And, and if, if you work for a living at any pace, you're a stay-at-home mom, you go to the office, you're in labor, whatever field you are in, you know when you've worked a full day, right? It's exhausting. You're like, we're going to go back out and do that again, right? It's like this, when we put the kids to bed, and then they keep getting up and walking down to the living room. You're like, we got to go up and do that again, right? It's like when your boss sends you that email at nine o'clock at night and says, this needs to be done by tomorrow morning. You're like, we got to go back out again. I just got home, right? Simon is feeling that. And here's what's interesting. Fishermen, the Sea of Galilee, they would have fished at night because of the temperature of the water. Fish during the day would have went to the middle of the sea, would have went down to the depths. So fishing with a net 
would not have been sufficient. But at night, because the waters are cooler, sun's not up, the fish would have come out to feed on the shores. And so the fishermen would have been traveling the shores, they would have put the net out, they would have brought fish in, and it would have been a good day. This night in particular, Simon did not have a good night. He was exhausted. They didn't catch anything. It was pathetic. It was pitiful. He knew it. He didn't feel it. He wasn't excited about it. So when Jesus says, let's go out to the deep, multiple things go through his head. One is, I've been here all night. I don't want to keep doing this. And second is, you're crazy, Jesus, because you don't catch fish in the middle of the sea. Like, that doesn't happen. And he's probably like, I'm the fisherman. You're the carpenter. Stay in your lane. Have you ever had that? Like the armchair quarterback that's like, this is how I think you should do your job. You're like, yeah, why don't you just not share that with me? And why don't I just keep going this way, right? And that's kind of the scene here, I think, right? I, we got to put some flesh to it. Sometimes we, we kind of think that this is all kind of this really kind of homely moment, divine moment. It is, but there's also some realness to it. And I think Peter, Simon, he probably was like, man, this guy's getting my way. I'm not so sure how to do this. I'm not so sure, sure I want to do this. Jesus kind of saying this. He's telling me to go do this. I don't know. He's probably exhausted. Have you been there? Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're there right now. And here's the reality. You could be coming to church for 40 years, be here on a Sunday morning, do all the Sunday school stuff, and Jesus maybe hasn't gotten in your way. Maybe it's just been routine it's just something that you do and you kind of attribute your life to and it's morally good. Or maybe you're here and life is not going well and for some reason you're here. You're not quite sure, but you're like, I'm at the end of my rope maybe. Or maybe Jesus got in your way in a unique way. You're like, I'm not sure what's going on. But Peter, Simon, he answers like this in verse five, the latter. He says this to Jesus, I've been out all night, I didn't catch anything, you're a carpenter, I'm a fisherman, but because you say so, I will let down the nets, right? Now, Peter, Simon, he's had interactions with Jesus before. Jesus here, he healed Simon's mother-in-law the chapter before. Simon has seen Jesus. It's not the first experience with Jesus. He's heard about Jesus, so he knows the kind of things that Jesus does. But at the same time, can you hear in his voice, but I guess if you say so, man, let's just go throw down the nets. You ever had that? Where there's been such an audacious statement or claim or invitation, so bold, you're like, we might as well take him up on it. But Simon's like, what could be worse? Didn't catch anything last night. Probably not going to catch anything now. Just kind of break even, spend an hour on a boat with this guy, right? Can you just hear it in his voice? And that might be where some of us are today. We're just like, I don't know. Life sucks. It's not going as plans. I'm not fulfilled. Kind of hopeless. He's this guy. About, but there's this Jesus guy. Maybe he's worth a try. Maybe he's worth checking out. Maybe he's worth listening to. Maybe we should check this thing out and keep going. And if you're there, you're welcome here. If you're there and you've been a part of this church for a while, you're welcome here. 
if you're here and you're first time and you're like, this is a desperation call, I just walked in, I'm not really sure what's going on in life, I just know that people talk about this Jesus guy and I'm trying to figure it out, you're welcome here. You have to agree with us to be here, we're just glad you're here. Because I think Simon, in some ways, was experiencing that. And I think, in an interesting way, he leans into Jesus so uniquely through that. Because in verse 6 and 7, Jesus does the bonkers thing that Jesus does. Verse 6 and 7, this is what it says. When they had done so, they're in the middle of the, the lake. They're in the middle of the sea. They're in the middle there. They put their nets down. And I bet Simon was like, oh, prove this guy wrong, you know? We're not going to catch anything, Jesus. They caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Can you imagine Simon's face? He'd been like, oh my gosh, what is going on right now? This is crazy, bonkers happening. So they signaled their partners in the other boat, come and help us, which you don't do. If you're grabbing fish, you don't ask the other guys to grab fish with you because those are your fish. There's so much fish. You're like, who cares? We're gonna invite the other guys over, right? They came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Listen, eyes up here. Have you ever, have you ever gone fishing and had a boat almost sink because you caught so much fish? No. This is an unreal experience. This is not your normal, typical, everyday, going out on the lake fishing experience. Jesus blows their minds. And this is the response that Simon has for him, which I don't think is the response that we would tend to think comes after that. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Simon saw what happened and it broke him. Why? Why? That's what I wonder I'm like in the chapter before, he saw his mother-in-law get healed. She was sick, he got healed. Why not then? And it's just fish, Simon. Why are you freaking out about this, right? It's cool, it's awesome, but why are you falling at his knees? What is going on here? What is happening in this moment? Listen, Jesus made it personal to Simon. Jesus made himself personal in the boat, around the fish with Simon. Jesus became personal to him and he could not help but see who Jesus is and not only what he's done, but who he is in light of that and respond to him because of that. Jesus took Simon's business, which was a struggle, made it successful. He made himself personal in that gracious act. Listen, that's not always how it happens, right? Oftentimes, or sometimes, Jesus makes himself personal in our pain. He took a painful moment for Simon, led him through that. He got personal with him. Has Jesus made himself personal to you? Has he made himself personal to you? Listen, like I said, it wasn't Simon's first time interacting with Jesus. For some of you, it's not your first time interacting with Jesus. And you're like, he hasn't been personal to me yet. I'm just doing the religious thing. I'm just doing the thing that people are dragging me to. I'm going to church. I'm here on Sundays. He's not personal yet. For us of you, you're just exploring Jesus. And you're like, 
He's not become personal because I just don't know what he's about. Jesus wants to make himself personal to you. He does for Simon in the boat, and it changes forever how Simon sees Jesus because when Jesus makes himself personal to you, you begin to see the power of Jesus and who he is and what he's come to do for you and ultimately through you. Follow me starts with identity. And so when we see what Simon does, it actually is calling to his identity. So firstly, following Jesus begins by falling at his feet. Following Jesus does not begin by joining the church programs. Following Jesus does not begin by doing better more. Following Jesus does not begin by being a more moral person or saying all the right things. Following Jesus actually starts by falling at his feet. And that's what we see Peter do inside of this. Simon saw Jesus is God. That's what he saw in this moment. That Jesus is not just another teacher. He's not just another good moral guy. He's not just this kind of divine guru. He is the God of the universe. The sovereign, almighty, powerful, gracious God in the flesh. And what I love about Simon is his response is this. He says, go away from me, Lord. You see that? He says, go away from me, Lord. He, he attributes this title to Jesus. He starts to recognize Jesus as the rightful ruler, leader, captain of life. He attributes that. That is the beginning of following. When you attribute to someone that leader title, what is Simon doing here? He's recognizing who he should be following. Because that guy is not just another guy. That guy is the God of the universe that made himself known inside of this moment. Who else could have brought those fish from the middle of the sea in the depths, hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of feet down? It's only God who's the creator of all things and all powerful. It has to be him. Simon recognized something that we all need to when talking about following Jesus. Jesus is God and I'm not. He got to the end of himself. He's like, Lord, go away from me. I don't even know how to navigate this. I don't even know what to do with this. You're in my boat right now. There's fish everywhere. He's like, I shouldn't even be here with you because he recognized that Jesus is holy, which that word holy literally just means set apart. That Jesus is God and God is set apart, distinct, unique in who he is, different than us. He is without sin. He is all-powerful. He's almighty. He's all-glorious. He is all-loving and all-gracious. And what Simon recognized is this. By in that scene, Jesus becoming personal to him, it revealed the power of who he is inside of that. And Jesus' power comes after us to redeem us. And Simon noticed that something was different here. Something's off. Something doesn't feel the same, and I got to figure that out. Because I looked at this passage, and I'm like, boatload of fish. The night before, there wasn't fish. Two boatloads of fish. The night before, there really wasn't fish. Why isn't he celebrating? What's going, why is he almost like 
almost like brought to this like confessional, kind of almost this, this revealing moment, feels like he's devastated and conflicted. Why is that? And then he falls at Jesus' feet and says, get away from me, Lord. I'm like, no, keep fishing with me, Lord. Like, I want you in the boat every time if this is going to happen, right? Why does he do that? First, he sees Jesus as God. And when you and I have a personal interaction with Jesus and you see him as God in the flesh, you can't help but fall in praise and worship and even in some form tremble because of who he is and the gloriousness and the love that he lavishes on us and the grace that he lavishes on us. But simultaneously, when you see Jesus, you see yourself. Seeing Jesus sees myself. Simon recognized that if Jesus is God, he is not. And if he is not, he has been living in such a way that he is, which we would call sin, and the Bible would define as sin. That when you and I come face-to-face with, face face with Jesus and recognize him as Lord, we start to then recognize that my identity has been misplaced because if he is Lord, I cannot be. And if I'm living as Lord of my life, if I'm living as Savior and King of my life, then biblically, we're living in sin. But literally, it's just a misplaced identity where activity follows from that. There's a a guy by the name of Paul Tripp. He would say this, if you do not place yourself before the glorious glory of God's holiness, okay? God's holiness is he set apart Think of the wonder, the beauty, the love that he demonstrates and lavishes. The power, the might, the creative ability, the justice, all of that's wrapped in his holiness. You will see yourself as more righteous. If you do not place yourself before the glorious glory of God's holiness, you will see yourself as more righteous, wiser, and stronger than you are, ever were or ever will be. You will live as if there is no God. Listen, Jesus making himself personal to us is so gracious of him. Because when the God of the universe put skin on, his goal was to become personal to us so that we could see the deep need we have for him. And when Simon interacts with Jesus, he sees, oh, Lord, you are God you are all powerful. And then he kind of refracts in. He, he retracts in here. And he says, I am a sinful man. Why? Because in this scene, our sin tells us that we are trying to live as our own God or without one. Listen, what he is saying there is he is putting identity on himself. I am a sinful man because what Simon recognizes is that sin is not first an activity, but it's a misplaced identity. Oftentimes we think sin is just the activity out there. Don't mess with that. Don't mess with this. Sin biblically is trying to fulfill good desires, but in doing so, being our own God or running from the one true God. That sin starts with us trusting in ourselves and not him. Not trusting in God and his love and leadership of my life. And so when Simon falls at his knees and he's like, Lord, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. He's recognizing that the follow the leader has been wrong up to this point. He's been the leader 
that he's been following. And rather, Jesus is the true Lord and King and Savior of the world who's come and said, follow me. Not because you're righteous, but because I am. And when you recognize that you're trying to do this in and of yourselves and you can't and you get to the end of yourselves and you see me, you will turn and start to follow me. Not trying to be better, but ultimately responding to who Jesus is inside of that. Because here's the reality. Sin, it can just be, become an activity I participate in, but actually it's a reminder that my identity is misplaced because in Genesis 3, Satan deceives Adam and Eve into not trusting God and believing they are their own God by eating their fruit. Listen, the fruit came last. He said, no, no, do you think God really would withhold that from you? And if you eat this, you will become just like God. What he was doing was deceiving Adam and Eve into believing that they can live in and of themselves not trusting the love and leadership of God in their life, and then it fled into an activity of eating the fruit because I believed that. In our sin, we'll either run farther from or try harder to instead of running into him. In our sin, I'll try to be my own God or I'll try harder to gain an identity outside of him. But what I love about Luke 5 is this, Jesus graciously provides for Simon, graciously interacts with Simon, graciously gets personal with Simon, reveals himself, and then invites him in. What I love about this is he comes to Simon and says, I have grace for you. I love you. I'm gonna provide for you what you cannot provide for yourself. Trust me. Trust me in that. Be a part of what I'm doing because all of a sudden, as he restored his identity, in the process, he was restoring his role. And this verse is so short, so short, and yet so power-packed. So hold on with me, because Luke 5, verse 10, Jesus says something profound to Simon. He says this, then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Right? Don't be afraid. We just skim past that, and it can become like chicken soup for the soul. Don't be afraid, right? You know, the power goes out last night. Don't be afraid, Joel. I'm like in my bed, you know, tremoring, right? I'm like, oh, right? Don't be afraid. You can get into that job. Don't be afraid. Go tackle that problem, right? It can become chicken soup for the soul. Jesus was saying something so much more profound than that. Because here's the reality. You and I can often respond to God in fear, when you're faced personally with the God of the universe in skin, Jesus, and he makes himself personal to you and the power of Jesus is experienced around you and then you realize who you are in that, it's very easy to respond in fear. Whether you follow Jesus currently or you are not a follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't. I've had people walk in here and they're like, I'm amazed the church didn't burn down. I'm like... I don't know, I'm not. There's not a fire currently happening, right? But we as followers of Christ, listen, if you've been a part of church experience, you've been following Jesus for a long time, we can respond to God in fear. We can. I, I every day struggle with this. Because here's what happens, right? 
Satan who deceived us, right, into thinking we can do this on our own, when you run into the face of Jesus, right, it's very easy to run in and fear and say, Jesus, am I enough? Am I doing enough? I'm not sure I have enough. I'm not sure what to do with that. And all of a sudden, fear is how you respond to God. Get away from me. I'm, I'm not worthy. I can't do it. I'm not enough. What I love about Jesus is this. He doesn't disregard that in Peter. He doesn't say, Simon, oh, no, pick yourself up. You're a pretty good guy, man. Come on, old mate, we can do this. He doesn't disregard that. He doesn't say to Peter, pick yourself up. He recognizes what Peter's experiencing. And then he says, in my presence, do not be afraid. Because I have come to redeem you. Because you are not enough, yes, but I am. I am enough. And I have saved you from yourself into something. And so following Jesus, secondly, is trusting Jesus. Listen, the biggest challenge that you and I face every day is not traffic, work, our kids, or any of that sort. It is trusting that Jesus is who he says he is, and out of that, we are who we are in him. I struggle to trust that I am a son of God, that I am redeemed, that I'm ambassador every single day. And then I go to Jesus, and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, and I'm, I didn't do enough, and I'm not so sure. And we live out of this fear. And I wonder if Jesus was saying this to tell us to stop. Following me is not about you being enough. It's the matter that I was enough, and I have ushered you into something new. Literally, when Jesus says, don't be afraid, he's saying, stop being fearful. Stop being fearful. Why? I love this. This came to me at 10 o'clock one night this week. Jesus uses his set-apartness not to smite us, but to save us. Listen, oftentimes we, we see Jesus, and sometimes we can think, oh, he'd never, oh, I'm not going to even go there. Ah, I'm not so sure. Jesus, who is set apart, holy God in the flesh, did not set himself apart, but set himself among us to ultimately do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That is a gracious God because he could have used his holiness in other ways to get rid of us, to disown us, to say, I'm just gonna just kind of wipe it clean and we're just not gonna go there anymore. But instead, he got into the mess and what his holiness, his set-apartness did is it changed everybody who he came in contact with, everybody he got personal with. He had this gracious, loving encounter with, was changed and transformed. And so when Jesus is on the scene, he says, don't be afraid. I've come to save, not to condemn. And he is the living truth and living promise of this that the Old Testament prophets talk about. Isaiah 41, 13 and 14. This is what Isaiah writes as a promise to the people of Israel that their God is sharing with them. For I hold you by your right hand, I, the Lord your God, and I say to you, don't be afraid. I am here to help you. Though you are a lowly worm, which, you know, maybe they were at that time, right? Oh, Jacob, don't be afraid. People of Israel, for I will help you. 
I am the Lord, your Redeemer. I am the Holy One of Israel. This is what Jesus is saying. I am the physical embodiment of that passage. Don't be afraid. I am here with you. So look at Simon. Don't be afraid. I am with you. And on top of that, don't be afraid. I'm here to redeem you. I am your Redeemer. I'm not here to condemn. I'm here to invite in. I'm not here to do this and that, but I'm here to lavish mercy and grace. So stand up, Simon, and be a part of what is going on. What I love is this. That translates even further when John talks about it. 1 John 4. I was studying this this week. This is what John, the disciple of Jesus, writes in his latter letters. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. He's like, don't be afraid. I've forgiven you. Don't be afraid. I've graced you. Don't be afraid. I've come to save you. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Instead, embrace my perfect love for you. Jesus is this physical embodiment of a perfect love He came to do what he did for the sake of us being connected to him in life and to forever change who we are. Listen, I think Jesus wants us to run into him not because of how much we can do for him, but how much he's done for us. Remember my dad telling me this story. He was a middle school football coach. I probably have shared this in different ways before, but he was a middle school football coach and uh, at the middle school that I attended back in Indiana uh, and that he coached at, there was what we called the fence. There was a whole sports complex, had about four or five practice fields. It had a, a football field we played on, a track, and soccer fields. And the fence was, it was a lot of fence. Let's just say that, okay? And so when you didn't do something right or you had, you know, your grades weren't up to snuff or something happened where you needed to get disciplined on the football field, uh, the first kind of protocol was to run the fence, right? So I had to run the fence in a time or two, right? You run the fence, you're exhausted by halfway through, right? And you're like, why in the world? Well, you had two guys after one day of practice, something happened with grades or something happened to the practice, they had to run the fence, right? They had to run the fence, and my dad's standing there with a the clipboard, standing with his whistle, and he looks at the boys, and they are uh, seventh grade offense alignment, okay? So just position yourself there. They're probably seventh grade. They were probably short, probably a little stubby. They were probably trying to just figure out who they were and what was going on in life. And coach is telling them they have to run the fence. And he said there was one boy that looked at him, and a tear started to run down his face. Because for that young man, that would have been treacherous, just according to what he had to do. My dad looked at them and he said, but today, boys, I'm actually going to do it for you. And he handed the clipboard to one of the boys and he handed the whistle to the other. My dad put his hat on backwards. They said, go. He ran the fence and did for them what they could not do for themselves. Got back. The boys just all struck, what is going on? took the clipboard back, took the whistle back, and said, it's done. Now you can go home. And I imagine that's kind of the picture Jesus wants us to have of him. What my dad did for those boys is he made himself personal to them. But all of a sudden, he got into their life, and no longer was it just Coach Gregory. It's like, 
that's my favorite coach. And that coach knows me. And that coach, he loves me. Like he cares about, he did that for me. And forever changed how they probably looked at my dad as coach. And listen, Jesus wants to get into your life in a personal way. He came down and did for you what you could not do for yourself. And he handed you the clipboard, he handed you the whistle, and he took the cross. And by doing that, it's not just, okay, got the sins, we're throwing it out of here. But he came down and he saved and redeemed and graced you. And he stood around that fence or was hanging on that cross and said, this is for you. I am God in the flesh, and I have come to do this for you. Because those kids saw my dad not just as Coach Gregory anymore, but there was a personal connection. And by golly, I bet they listened to him every day since. They followed him probably very differently from that point on, because that's the coach that ran for me. And that is what Jesus is trying to articulate to Simon by saying, don't be afraid. Because what I have done for you is I've saved you. And you'll see how I'm going to do it. It's through the cross. And I'm going to rise again. And you're going to have life through me. And because of that, you become a child of God, of the Father in heaven. You become my ambassador. And I bet you're going to follow me differently. Because no longer is it about trying to keep up with him trying to be him, trying to become him. It's about following him out of the grace that he's lavished onto us. That's the gospel, that this perfect love is what I need to sink my teeth into because when Jesus becomes personal to us, he wants us to embrace his perfect love out of that. He becomes personal to us so that his perfect love makes so much more sense. It is magnified because at the beginning, The perfect love that we see starts with a perfect God. That God loves you and he created you. And the reality is sin separates us. We trusted the deception of Satan instead of trusted the love of God. And a perfect love actually, instead of setting himself apart from us, drove him to pursue us. Think about that. Yeah, it separated our relationship with him, our communication, our communion with him. That was a part of the punishment. But did he stay out of our business? No. He saw the need and he saw what it would take to run after us. And then Jesus, he died and rescued me and you. A personal love is a perfect personal savior doing for me what I could not do for myself. Running the fence, taking the cross, becoming personal inside of that. And for each and every one of us, he is the personal savior if you've said yes to him. And he says, trust my perfect love. My perfect love says that you are a child now. My perfect love says you're forgiven. My perfect love says that you are found righteous in the Father's sight through me. My perfect love says you're an ambassador and messenger of me. My perfect love says that you don't have to try harder. Just lean into me more. And out of that, we follow him. Because then saying yes to Jesus means a perfect love requires a response. For us to say yes to him, trust him, fall in love with him, trust that we don't have to be afraid. Francis Chan says this, and I thought it was interesting. 
Following Jesus is not about diligently keeping a set of rules or conjuring up the moral fortitude to lead good lives. It's about loving God and enjoying him. How many of us follow Jesus in an effort to love God and enjoy him more? I'll be be honest with you. I wake up and most days I follow Jesus because I don't believe he loves me enough. I follow him to try to get to a point where I feel good enough to interact with him. We're morally okay to be around him. I have a moral fortitude to like try to muster up a prayer that sounds pretty and beautiful. My fear is we live in the great chase of follow me as a way to do enough for him. Because listen, as the band comes up and I finish, I love how Jesus orders this. He says, do not be afraid. Now go and fish for people. Right? Think about that. Think about the order of that. Don't be afraid. I've come to love. I've come to pour out grace. Don't be afraid. When you understand what it means to live without fear, without fear of me, without fear of what I'm going to do, without fear of if you're enough and you just abide in this perfect love that is seen perfectly in the good news of Jesus, when you get to that point, it changes you. And it changes you in such a way that it sends you. Listen, eyes up here. If you live in fear, you will never accurately love God or love others the way that he desires us to. Fear drives selfish motives, desires, and comforts. Fear is, am I enough? Am I going to be enough? Do I do enough? Am I enough to you guys? I've shared my anxieties, right? I have enough approval out here because I'll do enough to maybe try to get them to clap for me and cheer for me, right? That's all fear-based. When I trust the perfect love of my Savior, who in that boat with all the stinky fish and Simon at his knees, after he says, Lord, I'm sinful, you get away from me. You're set apart from me. I can't be around you. They're your glory, your might, your power. Clearly, you're the God of the universe. Jesus gets down, I can imagine, on his knees and says, Simon, Simon, don't be afraid. Remember that from Isaiah? Don't don't be afraid. Remember what God was sharing with the Israelites? Don't be afraid. I am him in the flesh. Don't be afraid. I've come for you. Not to smite you, but to save you. Don't don't be afraid because my perfect love saves you, not your efforts. Your, Your sin you're trying to dig a hole out of. The fact that you believe in yourself more than living for me. Right? I've saved you from that. And the grace that I have for you is extensive. And all I ask of you is by faith to trust in me. To trust in me every single day. And out of that, you'll begin to follow me and see what it means to follow me. Because here's the reality. Once you and I lean into this perfect love that Jesus offers us that says, don't be afraid, we get to go fishing after that. Because following Jesus is a fishing experience too. It's a fishing experience, right? There's activity to be had. But that activity starts to flow once I understand my identity and his perfect love. What I love about what Jesus says, he says, now I'm going to teach you, I'm going to lead you into fishing 
for people is what he says. I love this. He speaks to you and I through speaking to a bunch of fishermen, right? Don't you love it? He uses their, their occupation. He's like, let's go fish for people now. Let's go do this thing together. Listen, he, he's inviting you to as he has set apart and has loved you and has given you an identity, he sets you apart. You are now his. And he doesn't set you apart so that we can sterilize and just meet in this big room and it's just us, but to be sent back out to go after others and to start fishing. And what I love is he's like, I'm going to send you back into the same occupation that you were doing. I'm going to use the same verbiage. So for us, it may not be fishing. It might be teaching. It might be stay at homing with the kids. It might be in taxes. You might own your own business. He's like, let's go fish for people. Let, let's, let's go teach for people. Let's go tax for people. I don't know if you do taxes, right? Let's go do this thing. Because once you've had an interaction with the Lord and Savior and his perfect love changes you and your identity is new, it sets you apart to see people differently. And then all of a sudden, we can go fish for people. And what I love also about that illustration is this. They were fishing for live fish, bringing into the boat, killing them so they could eat them. And he's like, the world is full of deadness and you have the ability to offer them life through me. We have the ability to share the gospel. Listen, when you and I have an interaction with Jesus, it sets us apart, not for the sake of sterilizing, but for the sake of running back in and being to others who Jesus was to us, making the personal Jesus personal to others in the way that we serve, in the way that we share, in the way that we're around them. Beating their heads with the Bible? No. Standing on the corner and yelling at No. Getting in their boats, going fishing with them. Getting into their personal space, being with them in the hard moments. When business isn't good, when life sucks, when it doesn't make sense. And then they finish like this. We haven't even gotten to the follow me portion of the passage. Verse 11. This is what happens. So they pulled their boats up on shore, right? They left everything and followed him. Which I was reading, and scholars believe they left everything. Imagine picking up that dead fish mess afterwards, right? They left everything. Business was booming. They left everything. So the question I have for you is this. Eyes up here. What do you have to leave to follow him? When you interact with Jesus as Lord, God, Savior, and you recognize that you've been living out of your own power, out of your own wisdom, out of your own identity, out of just trying to be your own Savior, and you interact with him, all of a sudden it changes. That perfect love drives you into fishing for people, but it also drives you into following him. And for some of us, that means leaving something for the sake of following him. For some of us, it's, it's leaving our pride, our ego. Maybe it's leaving a relationship, a friendship. Maybe it's leaving a lifestyle, trying to choose to live. Because when Jesus becomes Lord of my life, I start to see things through a different lens. I start to trust him out of his perfect love that how he calls us to live is the perfect, true 
way to live. So all of a sudden, I have to deal with the things that I've attached to my life. They left everything. We're fishermen. We know what to do. Left that. Our business, our family heritage in this. They left everything. For some of us, it means leaving and looking at Jesus and being okay with Jesus disagreeing with how we're living and calling us to follow him continually as I look at his perfect love. So my challenge would be this. Look at yourself this week in light of Jesus. Because if Jesus is just some moral guy, I can take whatever I want from what he said and kind of patch it together for my own life. If he's just another moral guy, I'll just take what I like and I'll patch it together. If he is Savior and Lord and my identity is found in him, then my activity needs to represent that identity. He calls us to follow him in light of that. Is there something that you're challenged to leave in light of following after him? Father, we thank you so much for who you are and all that you do. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for going before us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being the savior of the world. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And Father, I ask that you would challenge our heart and understanding of following you. It wouldn't just be an activity, but it'd be an identity. And so, Father, I pray across this room there are personal stories, personal moments, personal conflicts, personal conversations that are happening, that you would enter into the personal life of each and every one of us and make yourself real to us. Invite us to respond to you, Lord. Jesus, invite us to be a part of what it means to follow you, not just in doing good, but in the newness of what you offer us. I ask across this room, is there be a lot of different conversations happening that you would grace and mercy those conversations? And would you open up conversations amongst each other and what this would look like? Father, we praise you. Love you. We thank you. Praise your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. If you'd like to reach out and connect with us or hear more about Grace Church, you can head to barberton.gracechurches.org for more information. We meet in person at 10:30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 629 Wesleyan Avenue in Barberton. Have a great day.